cross town, living like a rock star. I'm going to kiss you. Episode 31 coming at you with Jason Fox. Yo, man, that's real, baby. Check it out. Everything on fasting. Let's go. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Thank you so much for listening, crew. We are on episode 31 with Dr. Jason Fong. And before diving into it, I want to say one thing. Our team has been hustling. We've been producing shows like crazy, COVID, non-COVID related. And the, the one thing I'd ask of you guys is if the show's doing anything for you, if it's improving your knowledge base for COVID, if it's providing you with quality content regarding healthcare, tell a friend. Help us grow the show so we can continue to change the boogie in this healthcare system. We have lofty goals, but I think they're attainable. So thank you for those that have done it already, but we really appreciate your efforts. Now, we landed Jason Fung, for real. And the reason, you, you might be asking yourself, why are you doing a fasting episode in the heights of COVID-19? And honestly, we read this JAMA article looking at risk factors for COVID and what, what comes up? Hypertension, diabetes, obesity. And in my mind and in our team's mind, maybe this is a, a wake-up call to, for us all to be healthier to look at ways that we can achieve our health goals. And in my humble opinion, fasting is certainly a sustainable, achievable way to to attain goals such as reducing weight, improving diabetes, improving hypertension. And you'll hear from the stories that we've talked about in our previous episode with Megan Ramos. Diabetics are coming off their medication. People are losing weight with such methods. So, this is why I wanted to wanted to do this show. We also dive into the physiology in terms of what happens when you fast. Why is it effective? We also talk about the impact it may have on your immune system, especially in a, in a time like COVID-19. So I hope you find this episode helpful. Before diving into it, let me tell you about our sponsors, BetterHelp. This is an online counseling service that provides high-quality counseling services via email, via video conferencing, via telephone, via messaging. And what a time to be able to have a service like this, especially in the height of a pandemic when we're all socially isolated and going through a lot. So sign up today, use promo code SOLVINGHEALTHCARE and get 10% off sign-up fees. Next, audible.ca. I said it before, I'll say it again. This service has changed my game audio service that gives you books one one per month at an affordable rate, high quality collection of, of books at your disposal, all the best sellers you could think of. Sign up using the links attached to the show notes and that will help support the show. So I appreciate the, uh, the efforts and all Jason's books will be linked up as well. So we got Jason Fung. 
He is a nephrologist, for those that don't know, world expert in fasting and low-carb approaches. He's This especially in the context of type 2 diabetics. He's a three-time bestseller. He co-founded The Fasting Method, and it was a true privilege to have this guy on the show. This guy is truly changing the boogie. So without further ado, Jason Fong. Ladies and gentlemen, this is crazy. We got the one and only Jason Fong to come on the show and talk to us about fasting. How are you today, Jason? I'm excellent, thanks. How are you? Good, good. I hope you're you're keeping well and staying safe out there during this crazy, crazy time. <laughs> I got to tell you, so I listened to one of your, uh, you were guest on Peter Tia's podcast on, and you were talking about fasting. And one of the things that literally blew my mind was the, how we've approached type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. I wonder if you could just speak to that. Because when I heard this episode, I literally, I sent it off to my endocrinology colleagues. I'm like, this, what you're throwing down is so, like, it makes so much sense, yet we don't talk about it this way. So I, I, I'm wondering if you could comment oh, on yeah. that. Oh, yeah. I actually think this is super, super interesting. Again, because I actually am very, very close to type 2 diabetes because I'm a nephrologist, right? So the mm-hmm. you know the main, main, main cause really of uh, chronic kidney disease is diabetes, high blood pressure too, and type 2 obviously is the, the, the major thing. And I think that this is one of the things I covered in the diabetes code, which is really, really, really important in terms of the way we approach type 2 diabetes, because I think the way we've approached it is actually completely wrong and therefore doesn't really uh, let us sort of make strides in terms of preventing it. So Mm -hmm. the the point I was trying to make is that if you look at diabetes, so I trained in the 90s and and back then, the standard was to just basically get the, the blood sugar down. Okay, to get that A1C down as low as you can, give as much insulin as you possibly could to get A1Cs as normal as possible. And we thought that would prevent end organ damage, prevent MIs, prevent strokes, prevent blindness, prevent kidney disease. So in 2008, when the Accord study came out, it blew everybody's mind that actually this made no difference. Maybe it was harmful, but the advanced study and the VADT and other studies subsequent to that like really large scale randomized studies. So the best evidence we had said that the blood sugar, controlling the blood sugar made no difference, which was completely against the sort of prevailing paradigm of type two diabetes, which is that it's that blood sugar, which is causing all that damage. And that should have sort of immediately sort of gotten people to think, hey, what's wrong with this paradigm? And I really spent a long time trying to think about it. And there's two issues with type 2 diabetes. And I think this is what's uh, sort of eluding people is that not only do you have the high blood glucose, but you also have a hyperinsulinemic state, which Mm -hmm. is that if you think about what type 2 diabetes is, it's really a disease of too much, say, insulin resistance. We say that all the time. And we think that the hyperinsulinemia is compensatory right? So if Mm -hmm. you have insulin resistance, what happens is that the uh, glucose can't get into the cell, therefore the body produces more insulin to shove that glucose into that cell. So let's take the liver cell. The liver cell is, for some reason, resistant to insulin, Mm -hmm. therefore glucose does not go in. If it doesn't go in, you've got a state of internal starvation. That is, that cell has too little glucose inside the body. 
and there's too much glucose outside the body, in which case the proper thing to do is give more insulin to really shove that glucose by force into that cell because there's too little glucose in the cell. So in type 1 diabetes, this is exactly the state we're talking about. There's no insulin, therefore you have a state of the cellular starvation, and people are skinny. So what happens in untreated type 1 diabetes is people actually just lose weight, lose weight, lose weight, and then they die because they got so skinny, and these people are like sticks. They're like walking sticks. But that's not the situation that we see in type 2 diabetes. So we know that the phenotype of type 2 diabetes is that you got big fat people, you have big fat livers, you have big fat bellies. Like that's just the that's just the phenotype. People are not in a state of internal starvation. So that entire paradigm is incorrect. So then you have to ask yourself, so if the glucose is outside the cell and it can't go inside the cell, what's the problem? So we have always assumed that it's this the, the cellular receptor for glucose is like a gate, right? And mm -hmm. insulin is like the key. The key opens the gate. It lets the glucose in. And you can do sequencing studies. You can look at the insulin in the body. It's completely normal. You can look at the insulin receptor in the body. It's completely normal as well. So what's the problem? So we say, well, it's like there's a piece of gum that's in the lock. And therefore, the lock's normal, the gate is normal, but the mechanism to open is abnormal. And therefore, the glucose doesn't go into the cell. But there's another possibility, which makes a lot more sense and explains a lot of what we see clinically. That is, what if the problem is not that the gate is too closed? What if the cell is just overfilled with glucose? Yes. And that yes. is the reason that you can't shove the glucose in. Just like if you have a subway car and it's completely full. Well, the people on the platform cannot go in because the, the train is completely full. Mm. There's no problem with the door. There's no problem with the signal. They just can't go in. So in that situation, an overfilled situation, what are you going to see? Where well, are you going to see big fat liver cells, for example? And what are those big fat liver cells going to do? They're going to start pumping out that glucose, they're going to turn it into fat, which is the process called de novo lipogenesis. They're going to pump it out and therefore raise your triglycerides because it pumps it out as VLDL, right? So triglycerides go up, which means HDL goes down. So now you've got fatty liver, you've got insulin resistance, you've got high VLDLs, high triglycerides, low HDLs. It's like, well, what is that? That's like four of the five criteria of the metabolic syndrome. Hmm. So the point is that if you think about this overfilling as the primary mechanism, then the exact wrong thing to do is give more insulin and try and shove more glucose into a cell that's already filled with glucose. And that was probably why you actually didn't see any benefit in the advanced core VADT studies. So if the problem is too much glucose, it's not too much glucose in the blood. It's actually too much glucose over the entire body. Everywhere. So everywhere. That's why you have fatty liver. That's why you have fatty pancreas. That's why you have organs swimming in fat because the liver is trying to pump out this fat, this de novo lipogenesis is trying to pump out fat as, as, as fast as it can. So this explains the sort of central paradox of insulin resistance. That is, if you look at the actions of insulin, so let's take a liver cell, the actions mm -hmm. of insulin, there's several actions of insulin. Insulin allows the glucose to go in. So it's, you say, okay, it's resistant. But insulin also tells the body, for example, 
to increase de novo lipogenesis, right? Insulin is a storage hormone. When you eat, insulin goes up and the body will increase de novo lipogenesis. So what happens to de novo lipogenesis in type 2 diabetes? It's basically through the roof. So mm-hmm. it's not resistant. This is the same cell, the same hepatocyte, the same insulin, the same insulin receptor. But one of the actions of insulin, that is letting glucose in, is resistant. So we call it insulin resistance. But if you look at, hey, what about the action of insulin on de novo lipogenesis? It's actually increased like three or four fold. So that doesn't make sense. You can't have a hepatocyte, which is both insulin resistant and insulin super sensitive at the same time. It doesn't make any sense. That's Mm. the central paradox of insulin resistance. It's selective. Mm. And, And that's the point that people don't appreciate very well. They just say it's resistance. It's not resistance. It's only resistant to one of the mechanism because the mechanism is actually an overfilling of cells. So if you think about it simplistically, you can say, okay, well, let's think about this for a second. Type 2 diabetes is really a disease of overfilling of glucose in our bodies, right? So it's like a barrel, right? You fill it up and if you have too much glucose, it's going to spill out into the blood. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to give insulin and simply shift you're not getting rid of the glucose. You're going to shift the glucose from the blood into the liver cell. What's going to happen? Well, nothing good, right? You're not going to have lower heart attacks. You're not going to have lower MIs, strokes, cancer, the whole works. You're going to gain weight because insulin mm-hmm. does that, right? And as insulin gain, makes you gain weight, what do you think happens to the type 2 diabetes? It gets worse. <laughs> so this is a disease we know it's going to get worse if you simply give so much insulin that people just gain weight. But you actually have good data now because if you look at the Empereg study, if you look at the you know, Credence study, all those ones coming out from the SGLT2s, what's different is about that is that you're actually not just shifting glucose from the blood into the body. So metformin doesn't get rid of the, glu- the, the, the sugar either. Mm-hmm. But all those uh, dapagliflozins, empagliflozins, they do. You basically urinate out all that glucose. So the effect on A1C is minimal, is minuscule. There's basically a 0.2, 0.4 drop in A1C. It's horribly bad. But if you look at end organ damage, MIs, heart failure, uh, kidney disease, down 20, 30%. Like unbelievable end organ protection because you're actually dealing with the underlying cause. The cause was an overfilling of glucose in the body. You're peeing out the glucose, just like if you have a rain barrel and you, you, know, you turn, on, uh, turn the spout on at the bottom and you're letting some of that glucose out. Mm-hmm. You're going to do better. And if you look at the data coming out from things such as um, you know, some of the GLP-1s now, what do they do? Well, they make you nauseated so you can't eat. And now, because, hey, if you're thinking about that rain barrel, if you're going to put less glucose into the body and the disease was too much glucose, you're going to reduce heart disease. And that's exactly what we're finding. You're finding mm. less microalbuminuria, and those are all the sustained studies that were published in the New England Journal, sustained six and sustained seven and all those other studies. It's like, oh, my God, this actually proves the paradigm that what we have to think about is not the blood glucose, it's the whole body glucose, because that's the problem. 
moving it, like metformin, which holds the glucose in the liver and doesn't let the glucose put the, the glucose out so that the blood sugars are better. Well, have mm-hmm. you gotten rid of the total body glucose? If you haven't, you haven't done anything. And you know which drugs are good because both the GLP-1s and the SGLT-2s, they lower the weight. And mm-hmm. what happens when you lose weight with type 2 diabetes? Well, you're going to get better. And mm-hmm. it's really as simple as that. The whole body glucose, and it's really approaching it from a, the proper paradigm. So if you use intermittent fasting, now you say, well, if the problem is that there's too much sugar in the body, don't put any more in. Mm-hmm. And guess what? When you do intermittent fasting, a lot of these people's type 2 diabetes, they completely reverse. And we did cure. a, uh, yeah, I mean, cure is a tough word because really you're talking about filling. So you can always fill it back up again. But the point is that if you, uh, and, and we did a case series of this, we had three patients who had type 2 diabetes for about 20, 25 years on about 70 units of insulin. And we started them on a fasting regimen and it wasn't that bad. It was 24 hours fasting three times a week. And they were on like 70 units. They had been on for about five years. We took all three of them off of all their insulin within 18 days. Jesus and then Christ. within a couple months, their A1Cs were normal. And even now their A1Cs are normal. So in fact, that 25 years of type 2 diabetes completely reversed in less than three months. It was ridiculous how quick people got better. It was just ridiculous. It's just so mind-blowing because it's just such a, a paradigm shift on how we've approached this for years. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like the, the principle yeah. of insulin resistance. Okay, yeah, they're obese, they're the type 2 diabetic. We're going to need more insulin to try and manage that blood sugar. Whereas if you think about how we could deplete the body of, of the glucose stores, you know, this is, a, this is a real answer. So just yeah. as you mentioned, fasting, you know, periods of time where you get to eliminate your, your glycogen st- stores, and we see the benefit in, in, in our type 2 diabetic patients. Like, unbelievable. It's unbelievable because if you, even if you think about it for two seconds, that is, okay, if you do intermittent fasting, what happens? Well, your blood glucose goes down. We know that. That's why we tell people to, you know, make sure they follow their proper diet and take their insulin and so on. So the point is that if you don't eat, your blood glucose will likely fall. And hey, why don't you do that instead of taking medications? Mm -hmm. Like it's natural, it's available, everybody can do it. And in the end, if you don't eat, you're going to lose weight. And if you lose weight, your type 2 diabetes will go away. Again, we know that almost for sure because we have those bariatric surgery studies and I'm not a huge fan of bariatric surgery, but they, it does work, obviously. Mm-hmm. So it's crazy because when you look at those bariatric surgery studies, that diabetes just goes away in like the first like three weeks. It's mm-hmm. gone, right? It's crazy how fast those people got better, which means that the disease of type 2 diabetes was not chronic and irreversible. That was just a lie because the studies of the bariatric surgery proved that it was reversible. You just didn't use the right treatment. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. Fasting does exactly the same thing. It lets your body use up those stores of sugar. And as you use them up, you're not going to be overflowing. So I, I sometimes use the analogies, like think about a car. So you go to the gas station three times a day and your gas tank is full, but you pump gas anyway. So now it's spilling out into your back seat and it's making you sick. Well, what are you going to do? Well, 
I'll tell you what you won't do is keep going to that gas station again. What you mm -hmm. are going to do is one, stop going to the gas station and two, run your car around so that you can burn off some gas. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're doing with fasting. If you have an overload of glucose in the body, then don't put more glucose in. And two, by fasting, you're going to allow your body without doing anything. Like exercise is good too, but you actually have to do something. Fasting is something you're not doing rather than something you're doing. So it's a lot mm -hmm. easier. You're just going to let your body use up that glucose because every day you're going to use, you know, a couple thousand calories of energy. And if you're not mm -hmm. eating, your body must take it from the glycogen stores. Mm -hmm. And then short of that, it's going to have to break down triglycerides, fat, adipocytes, right? You're mm -hmm. going to release the fat and you're going to burn it for energy. And mm -hmm. in doing so, you're going to lose weight. But more than that, your body actually preferentially pulls that fat out of the liver because mm -hmm. it's the closest, right? When you're, doing, uh, when you're releasing the fat, the fat's right in the liver. So the liver's like, yeah, I'll just take the fat from right there. And mm -hmm. as you get rid of that fatty liver, the insulin resistance goes down. But it wasn't resistance in this, that sense. In the it was first really place. an overflow. Yeah, and it's mm -hmm. this entire rethinking of type 2 diabetes that's so important because you and I both trained on this old system of it's the glucose in the blood that is killing people. Use as much insulin as you need to to get rid of the glucose. Mm -hmm. Instead, what we should have been thinking is this is a complete body overload of glucose. Anytime you're putting glucose in, you're going to make the problem worse, mm -hmm. not better. And therefore, that leads you to the solution that, hey, why don't we just uh, help people? Like intermittent fasting is free, but it's not fun. Like nobody really wants to do it, but nobody wants to have a heart attack. So it's like <laughs> we can make people better. And it's not our job to tell people what they can and can't do. If it's tough, will help them if it's the proper thing to do. And that's what, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of endocrinologists go, oh, yeah, but people won't do it. It's like, it's not my job to tell them what they can and can't do. Like, I believe that humans can do stuff when they put their mind to it. Yeah. If it's tough, let me help them do it. Don't tell yeah. them they can't do it. Like, that's ridiculous. And it's like, like, just my problem is like, how many endocrinologists are actively using it as a tool? And a lot of patients don't even know that it's it's something that they could be using in their arsenal. Because this is this is why I'm really excited about having you on the show and really scaling up these things. Because in my opinion, it's sustainable. You see all these kind of diets, like whether whether you want to go ketogenic, don't judge me, people. Uh, whether you want to talk about Atkins, all these other these other diets. But you look at a lot of people that do intermittent fasting or time restricted eating, like it's they could sustain it. It's free. It's as you mentioned. It's not. It's not easy for everybody, but it should be something that should be offered. You know exactly. what I mean? Yeah. And uh, this is this is what gets me. Yeah, that gets me all the time too. Because it's like, let's think about this from a public health perspective. Because you know from ICU that the people you get are those people with diabetes, with the heart disease, with the stroke. Yes. Yes. And. Diabetes and obesity are these reversible conditions, which are by far and away the biggest risk factor for heart disease and cancer and stroke. I mean, literally like 50% of the healthcare budget could be saved if we can prevent this all 
And it's not like you need special clinics, like bariatric surgery works, but you need special surgeons and you need special clinics. Like this is not that. You need an office and somebody who, will, who has the knowledge. Like we're just talking about knowledge. If we can give people the knowledge and the support, they will get so much better. And literally you would save the healthcare system Millions, millions of dollars. Like people don't even like. Exactly. Like people don't really have a. I don't think could comprehend what kind of scale we're talking about because, as you mentioned, whether it's going into acute care, whether it's going into the ICU, or like all these kind of electric surgeries related to obesity and 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 diabetes, these could be prevented significantly. And you know, um, all it takes is a few ICU admissions throughout you know, the country to really have an impact on cost. But holy cow, like this is, this is, it's we're, not, we're not kidding. It's mind yeah. blowing. It's, it's, it's mind blowing. And maybe, do you mind, um, one of the questions that came up too is a lot of the benefits that we see in terms of fasting is mostly with proper fasting. So that you'll hear different terms, intermittent fasting, fasting, time-restricted eating, the people that have listened to my show, I do mostly time-restricted eating, like the 16-8 or 18-6. When it comes to the benefits, not only from, well, well, maybe we'll say from a weight loss or from a diabetic point of view, are you still getting benefits from different forms of fasting? Oh, yeah. So there's two major ways that fasting differs. So one is the length of time you fast, and two is what you allow during the fast. So if you talk about length, it's interesting because I think 16-8 is a great schedule. Um, however, if you go back to the 70s, the way that people ate in the 70s was very interesting to me because that's a time in our history where people are not really dieting. They're basically eating whatever their mother told them to eat, but there's very little obesity. And mm-hmm. it's one of the things is that, I mean, there's lots of different things like less fast food and so on. But one of the things that hasn't been talked about a whole lot is that their uh, meal timing is much different from ours. That is, it's three meals a day and no snacks, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's really important because if you eat at 8 a.m. breakfast and 6 p.m. dinner, you're talking about a 10-hour eating window and a 14-hour fast every single day without even thinking about it, right? So your fasting period is a 14-hour fast every day, and that's where you get the term break fast, breakfast, and the point is that if you try to get a after-school snack, your mom would say, no, you know, you're going to ruin your dinner. <laughs> and if you uh, wanted a bedtime snack, she'd say, no, you should have ate more at dinner. So clearly, <laughs> it was not something that was necessary. And that's completely changed. Like you go to school and people are like, oh, we gave him a snack here. We gave him a snack here. You know, make sure you have a snack. We get like, why? Like, I remember one day uh, they said, oh, we're taking the kids to some field trip, but don't worry, we're going to give them snacks. I'm like, why are you doing that? I was thinking this because, you know, uh, I don't want to raise too much ruckus. But yeah. like, why? Didn't you give, aren't they eating lunch? Like, why would you want to do that? Like, this is my problem. And then we teach these kids that you have to eat. And, and you've gone to these medical conferences, right? Breakfast. Yeah. 10.30, they wheel out the muffins. 12 o'clock lunch. 2.30, they wheel out like granola bars, right? And then dinner. It's like, what are you, insane? Like, why do you need all that food? Like, the body will know how to handle it. But the point is that if, even if you maintain that 14-hour fast, remember, in the 70s, I, I grew up in the 70s, um, you, people are eating white bread. Nobody's eating whole wheat bread. Mm-hmm. There's no whole wheat pasta. But people are eating spaghetti. People are eating Oreo cookies. People are eating uh, pizza. 
They're just not mm-hmm. eating all the time. That mm-hmm. is, if you missed a meal, you missed a meal. That was it. Nobody was like, so if you were a bad boy, you'd get sent to, to, to your room without dinner. So you're I'll actually fasting <laughs> <laughs> from uh, noon till eight. You had a 20 hour fast and nobody blinked an eye. Nobody freaked out that, oh, you're going to go into starvation mode or something stupid like that. Or you're killing mm-hmm. him. It's like, you know, every naughty boy had this 20 hour fast every so often. Right. And it was, it was fine. It was no problem. And there was no obesity because what's happening, of course, is that during the period of time that you're eating, insulin is going up and you're going to switch your body into storage mode. You're going to store those calories, right? This is just pure physiology. When insulin goes up, we know that, so say you eat a mixed meal and insulin goes up. What happens is that insulin blocks fat burning. So technically we say insulin inhibits lipolysis. That is, you can't break down your fat stores because you're trying to increase your fat stores, which is what you're supposed to do because you're eating. When you don't eat, when you're fasting, insulin is going to drop. And during that period of time, you're going to, you need to burn fat. So you're going to burn glycogen, so glycogenolysis. And if you don't have that much glycogen, then lipolysis, right? So you're going to break down your stores of energy so that you don't die in your sleep every single night right? Mm -hmm. That's just what the human body does. If you are naughty and you missed your dinner, you're going to have an increased period of glycogenolysis, which is sugar, or lipolysis, which is fat. And that's all. That's all that Mm -hmm. happens. Like, why are we so worried? If we have people (laughs) who, okay, say you burn 2,000 calories a day, and we have people who have 200,000 calories of body fat sitting on their body making them sick. So if you Mm -hmm. don't eat, then insulin is going to drop. They're going to start burning fat. Well, you have like, you know, 200 days worth of calories sitting right there that's actually making you sick. Mm. Why wouldn't you want them to use it? What the Mm. hell problem do you have with fasting? It's not like we just thought of it. Like I didn't think of it and start promoting it. It's in like the Bible, right? (laughs) From thousands of years ago, we talked about that. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. It's an Old Testament kind of thing. And before that, the cavemen had to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So your body knows how to handle it. It's Mm -hmm. and it's not that you're going to go into starvation mode. The point is that your body is actually going to switch your fuel sources. Because you're not having any input of fuel, so therefore you need to rely on your stored fuel. But it's okay, right? You Mm -hmm. just go into that stored fuel, you know, the body fat, take out your 2,000 calories, and you're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And then people worry all kinds of stupid stuff. They they worry about, oh, you're going to be tired and stuff. It's like, okay, well, let's think about this for a second again. Again, pure physiology. As insulin drops, what happens? Well counter-regulatory hormones go up. Now, this is first-year medical school stuff. What are those counter-regulatory hormones? Sympathetic nervous system goes up. That is your fight-or-flight response. That is, Mm -hmm. you are not shutting down your body. You're activating your body. Cortisol goes up. Noradrenaline goes up. Those are all counter-regulatory hormones. And growth hormone goes up. So that's really important because if you're trying to maintain lean mass, maintain bone mass, for example... Growth hormone is very, very important. Mm. So the point is that your body isn't sort of just shutting itself down, which is what we've been told for the last 30 years, which is what I find faintly ridiculous. Because if you actually look from a physiologic standpoint, 
your body is ramping itself up. So when we actually do it to all these patients, they actually have more energy when right. they're fasting. They actually feel better. Uh, one guy said, you know, his wife started fasting. He can't even keep up with her anymore because she's so got so much energy. Why? Because we've actually started to tap into her fat store and we're releasing all that energy. She's using it because now we've sort of opened that switch where she can actually use that. We haven't blocked the lipolysis. So by activating the body, she actually feels so much better. And, and you can see it. So for example, if you go in the woods and you see a, a lion that just ate or a hungry wolf, like which is more scary? It's like that hungry wolf is way scarier because it hasn't eaten. It doesn't mean it's tired and lethargic. It means it's dialed in and has energy to spare because you're actually open the floodgates from your fat cells. And that's the whole point is this is what we want in obesity and type 2 diabetes and all these metabolic diseases. This is precisely the physiologic state that we're looking for, but you can only get to it if you've got your insulin low, if you've got, you know, switched over into this sort of fat burning mode, mm. like if your insulin is high, like we did told, like we told people, and this is so stupid again. So, <laughs> If we told people to eat a very low-fat diet, so eat lots of pasta and bread, then eat six, eight times a day, right? So you're eating mm -hmm. muffins at 12, you know, you're eating cookies and crackers all day. Insulin's mm -hmm. gonna go up. Insulin goes up. What happens? Insulin inhibits lipolysis. We've known that for 100 years. So as insulin stays high because of your low-fat diet and eating 10 times a day, you're gonna block fat burning. Now all of a sudden, you're eating less calories because you're trying to lose weight, but you actually can't burn any fat. So what happens? Well, your energy expenditure has to go down. So now your body is, is actually going to go into this starvation mode where your basal metabolic rate is going to drop. Interesting. Yeah. It's just physiology. Oh man. Like, first of all, the explanation for the energy levels that's the first time I've really like heard a good physiologic explanation for that because, you know, as I mentioned before on previous show, the mornings where you're, you're in a fasted state, great energy. I, I, I was telling Megan too, like my workouts, my best workouts are during fasted state. And, it, you know, having that increased catecholamine, also growth hormone, I think that has a, a, clearly has a, a place in there. That is like yeah. great to hear. And then also, because th this was a question that came up too, was the, the whole idea of reducing your metabolic rate from fasting. And I'm glad you touched on that because that's a, a, a common question that comes up all the time. If I'm reducing my calories, am I going to reduce my metabolic rate and then ultimately uh, have a tough time like uh, losing weight yeah. and so forth? So this is, I think, where if you follow a calorie-reduced diet but eat all the time, that is you're keeping your insulin high but you're eating constantly but less total calories, but because you're eating all the time and insulin is high, you've actually blocked lipolysis so you actually can't access those stores. You have to drop your energy expenditure. And people assume that as you go to zero, that that sort of starvation mode is going to increase, but it doesn't. So there's one study that's very interesting where they basically took people and fasted them for four days. And what they found when they measured the metabolic rate at day zero and day four was that the basal metabolic rate, as well as the VO2, which is how much work your body is doing, increased by 10%. That is, you're burning 10% more calories at day four of fasting. Hmm. So it's like your body is not shutting down. It's ramping itself up. We have so many people come back and tell us, 
you know, I can't sleep. I'm so pumped up that I actually <laughs> just can't sleep at all. I'm like, yeah, that's a side effect. That's this is what happens. Um, same thing with wow. breakfast. Like breakfast is crazy to me. And, oh, just touching on the um, the athletic part of things. It's like, yeah, people who work out fasted sort of have this sort of ideal mode. It's not great for if you're, perf- you know, it's great for training, but although not so good for sort of like if you're actually in Indeed. the competition. Yeah. But when you're training, you actually want to train in the fasted state because what happens is that growth hormone is up, catecholamines are up. So you're actually going to be able to work out harder but because when you start to eat again and your growth hormone is high, you're going to be able to recover faster, which is a huge advantage if you're a competitive athlete. Wow. So the, the, this whole idea of you know eating and then working out, like that's that's where's the physiology behind that? There 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 is none. Really, what you want to do is say, for example, fast, work out, and then eat after that, like mm-hmm. and and some protein probably if you're doing a lot of muscle work, but. Mm-hmm. The, the, the whole idea is that all right, you know what we've been told about fasting, almost all of it is completely wrong. This basal metabolic rate thing. And mm-hmm. the hunger thing is completely wrong too. So this is another thing we see clinically. Once you start to treat a lot of people, people find that their hunger doesn't go up, it goes down. And in fact, if you look at studies of uh, fasting and ghrelin, so ghrelin is the hunger hormone. So if it's high, you're more hungry. One of the big things that people have noted is that if you do, and there's this really interesting study where they did a 24-hour period where they fasted people and measured ghrelin as a, as a marker for hunger. So ghrelin peaks sort of three times a day at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. If you skip lunch, for example, what happens is that ghrelin goes up, so you're hungry. But what happens when you don't eat? It actually falls right back down to baseline. That is, the level of hunger that you feel at sort of one o'clock is high, by five o'clock, you actually feel very little difference in terms of hunger, whether you ate lunch or not. It's the same with dinner, mm. which is fascinating because we've all done it. We've all mm. worked through lunch, like mm-hmm. uh, caught up with some really terrible case and mm-hmm. you know, you're in the OR, you're, you're in the ER, whatever it is, you work through lunch, you're hungry at one o'clock by five, you can't even remember that you didn't eat. You eat the same. And the point is that if your body, if you don't eat lunch, what happens is that your body simply takes the calories it needs from your stores, your glycogen or your adipocytes, and feeds itself through that. So you're not hungry because you've actually fed yourself through your own stored body. It's no different than, you know, uh, you know, if you, you go to the grocery store and you get some chicken or whether you get the chicken from your freezer downstairs. It's the mm-hmm. same. Right? Mm-hmm. So whether you take a burger or whether you take those calories from your body fat, you fed your body the same. And that's why your hunger actually starts to go down. So it's, wow. it's really, really interesting because hunger is this thing that people worry so much about. But if they simply ignore it, it will actually go back to baseline. And, and, and people actually say, they come, they come in and they always say, you know, um, I think my stomach shrank because I'm just not that hungry anymore. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know that your stomach actually shrank, but that's good because mm. now you're trying to work with your body to lose weight, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're less hungry and you're not eating, you're going to lose weight more successfully than if you're just trying to, you're, you're getting hungry and then denying yourself. I mean, this whole thing about eating six times a day, like I tell you, it's just massively stupid, like massively Mm. stupid because think about this for a second. So again, what is an appetizer? An appetizer is a small piece of 
you know, food or whatever. Mm-hmm. And its job is not to dull your hunger. It's to increase your hunger, right? It's an appetizer. So what we know is that if you take a small amount of food, you're going to stimulate saliva. You're going to see it. So there's a cephalic response. You're going to want more. Eating a little bit of food is going to make you more hungry. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? So now instead of three times a day, six times a day, we're going to give ourselves an appetizer, make ourselves hungry, and then stop eating. <laughs> like, does that sound like <laughs> successful strategy to you? Every day you're going to do this six times, eight times a day. You're going to give yourself an appetizer, make yourself hungry, and then stop eating. It's like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Why don't you just not eat? and let your body take what it needs from its stores. It's a far more successful strategy. And people go back to, oh, it's calories, calories. No, it's about everything about why you're eating those calories, right? The whole point mm-hmm. of calories is, you know, the, the people who, who focus on calories have missed the boat. They're, they're, they're looking at just the proximate cause. That is, the, the point is not that calories um, cause you to gain weight. The problem is why are we eating more calories than we did before? right? Mm-hmm. So in the 1970s, why are we okay eating fewer calories than we are now, right? Is it exercise? Is it this? Is it that? But part of the answer, I think, and a very important part is that the way we ate was more conducive to maintaining a stable body weight. That is having that 14-hour fasting period every day, I think, is sort of crucial to maintaining a stable body weight. Essentially, mm-hmm. your body exists in two states. You're either insulin is high and you're in the fed state, or insulin is low and you're in the fasted state. In the fed state, you're, you're storing fat. In the fasted state, you're burning fat. If you keep those two in relative balance, you're going to do all right. If you try to eat from the minute you get up to the minute you go to bed, which is what we've told people to do, like you and I have told people mm-hmm. to do this for the last 25 years, well, now you're in the fed state instead of 10 hours. 18 hours, what do you think is going to happen, right? Hmm. You're putting it in and not taking it out. What do you think is going to happen year after year, a pound here, a pound here, a pound here? The, the whole idea is, is just ludicrous. Like you look at the 1970s and people in their 60s and 70s and 80s, they're like the same body weight that they yeah. were when they were 30. Absolutely. Right? That doesn't happen anymore. Because every year we just, you know, we keep putting it in. And and this idea about breakfast is like, oh, you need it for energy. It's like, no, you don't. Because again, (laughs) if you look at the circadian rhythm, there's a, before you get up in the morning, you have this surge of counter-regulatory hormones, right? And we've known this for 50 years. I learned in a medical school at about 4 a.m. before you get up, your body secretes a higher dose of pulse of cortisol and growth hormone and so on. The point of which is to increase the glucose in your blood, right? Because that's what it does. The cortisol increases the glucose in your blood, getting you ready for the day ahead. So Mm -hmm. you don't need to eat breakfast because your body has already prepared you for the upcoming day. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, what's the whole point? I mean, it's, it's, it's really the body is so much like we treat our body, the human body as it's a, as if it's a complete moron, right? That we need to put two muffins in our mouth every 20 minutes. Otherwise we're going to die. It's like, how do you think we survived 5,000 years? What I love about this, Jason, is the fact that you always tie it 
to physiology. Like there is, you can understand when you look at the body's response to whether it's fasting, whether it's eating six times a day, there is like the answer lies in the physiology, which I, I don't think we talk about enough. You know what I mean? Like when we hear these random diets or whatever, it's often not based on, not well, definitely not on science, but not based on what the body's true response will be. And that's what I find very yeah. reassuring, very validating in terms of hearing why these approaches are, are, are yeah, great. Because that was what was missing. When I started looking at the sort of nutritional literature, it was a complete disaster. It still is, I it think, a bit is, of a mess. Yeah. Yeah. Because the point is that we say, okay, well, what you eat depends on how many calories you eat. It's like, okay, one, that's completely ridiculous. Show me in all of the physiology textbooks that we have the calorie receptors in our body, right? Can Mm. you please show me the calorie receptors? Because I don't think there are any, okay? So how does the body know what to do with the food that we ate? Well, it depends on the hormones, right? Mm -hmm. So if you eat a cookie versus a piece of salmon, The physiologic response, that is the hormonal response to those two foods, which are the same number of calories, Mm -hmm. is completely and utterly different. So if you eat a cookie, insulin is going to spike up. If you eat a piece of salmon, it's not going to spike up as much, right? It's Mm -hmm. protein and it's fat. So fat is going to be absorbed into the lymphatic system. Protein is going to activate mTOR, for example, as well as insulin, as opposed to say, the cookie, which is going to have completely different effects, right? And you can see it with uh, the um, glucose effect, right? The glycemic index. You can see it. One has a huge spike, one doesn't. So, okay, so we have all these hormonal properties of these two foods. The minute you put it in your mouth, the hormonal response is completely different. And we have to pretend that they're the same. Why would you do that? It's completely insane to pretend that these two hormonal responses (laughs) that our body produces is going to have the same effect on body fattening. That is, Mm. your body has a choice of what to do with those calories that it eats. It can store it or it can burn it. And which one it does depends on the hormonal response, insulin predominantly, right? There are Mm. others like cortisol, for example. This is one of the things that always puzzled me for a long time when when I used to think, obesity was just about calories. It's like, why, when you give prednisone, do people gain weight? It's like, hmm. you didn't make them different. A they lot still of them, eat the same. You can actually put them on the same diet. You can actually completely control that diet, 100%. If you give somebody prednisone, high dose, they will gain fat. It's mm-hmm. just a fact, right? You can, change, you, you can put them in a study and do the same thing. In fact, you can eat less calories and still gain fat. So there's this mm-hmm. really interesting study where they, this was back in the 90s when they, all it was about controlling A1C. So they took a group of type 2 diabetics on zero insulin, and then they ramped them up to control their blood glucose, wound up at six months on 100 units a day on average, and they gained 20 pounds. But what was interesting is they counted the number of calories they ate. They ate 300 calories less Mm. So they're eating fewer calories per day. Yeah, 300, Mm. so 2,000 down to 1,700. Less calories, but gaining 20 pounds of body fat. So the only way you can do that is that because of the hormonal effect of the prednisone, what's happening is that your body is storing all those calories and 
energy expenditure had to go way down in order to store that fat. Your body's like getting the message. So if you give insulin, the message is store fat, store fat, store fat, store fat. Prednisone mm. insulin is the same thing, right? You're, you're giving the body the message to store that fat. That's the primary thing it will do. And therefore, whatever calories is left, the 1700, so they're eating fewer calories because they're trying not to gain weight. Um, the body, the, the energy expenditure has to go way down. So they feel cold, they have no energy, they feel sluggish, they feel mm -hmm. lethargic, and they're gaining weight. But that's the effect of the insulin, which is primarily shoving all those calories into storage, into mm -hmm. body fat. So again, it's all physiology here. Like you can, once you understand that the body runs on hormones, mm -hmm. right? Insulin, cortisol, growth hormone, parathyroid hormone, that is the instructions, right? That's the code that we get. We have to follow them. When insulin goes up, we have a certain response to that insulin. When mTOR goes up, we have a certain response. When, uh, you know, AMPK or any of these other uh, hormones goes up or down or ghrelin, our body must respond to it in a stereotyped way. So if mm -hmm. the foods we eat has a different hormonal profile, which it does, that's not like opinion, that's fact. Mm -hmm. Therefore, our body must respond differently. So why pretend that all these calories are the same? So you get doctors who say, oh, you can eat ice cream and cookies for dinner as long as it's less calories. Like, oh, like you're not serious, are you? <laughs> like your grandmother yeah. thought would have thought you're an idiot. Right, and she would have been right. <laughs> I love the passion, but yeah, like you said, it's. I mean, maybe it's a part of us that just likes to look at things as simple as possible because that does take a lot of nuance. To you know, when you think about you know, if you do calorie in versus calorie out, that's a lot more simpler to think about what's the insulin response going to be and what I'm eating. But it's it's. I'm glad that you mentioned the calorie in calorie out hypothesis because I've also seen a lot of people not necessarily in the medical setting, but just colleagues that, you know, they go hardcore on that ketogenic side of things and they'll eat an insane amount of quote unquote calories, but they're not gaining weight. They're not, they're not, um, you know, obese. They're not gaining tons of fat. Like it's, 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 um, Crazy, yeah. yeah, like it's a real. Because the thing is that people always get this wrong. So people, if you look at the energy balance equation, so the energy balance equation is always correct. That is, uh, you know, body fat, excess body fat equals calories in minus calories out. That's always true, but it's approximate cause. So it's just like if you were to look at plane crashes, planes always crash because the amount of lift is insufficient to the level of gravity, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's just true, right? Lift versus gravity. That's flight. It is always true, but not useful. That is, you don't say, okay, well, therefore, I can prevent all plane crashes by bigger, making bigger wing or by lightening the load because the problem could be pilot error, right? Mm -hmm. So if pilot error is a problem, it's not correcting the lift. It's, it's the root causes, you know, bad pilot training, but in the end, it's always, a plane is always crashing because the force of gravity is more than the force of, 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 of lift. lift yeah. So it's like, that, but that's not useful because that's just the proximate cause. The ultimate cause is bad piloting. Therefore, if you treat the ultimate cause, which is make sure your pilots are well-trained, you will solve the problem. Same thing with the calories. Calories in minus calories out is always true, but it's not useful because you can't you can't simply say, I'm going to take less calories in or more calories out. So the question is, why are you taking more calories in? That's the real question. 
And mm. it's not it, like, it's not just our control. It's hunger. Hunger is our main issue with how much we eat, right? We eat until we're full. That's just the way humans are. So the main determinant of calories in is not us looking at it and deciding, you know, how many calories is it? It's us looking at the food and saying, am I hungry or not? So it's hunger that's more important than anything else. So let's take hunger, for example. If you eat a steak versus if you eat something like a can of Coke, if you eat the same calories, so a big gulp, so a big thing of Coke versus a piece of steak, same calories, the effect on your satiety, on hunger, are completely different. Mm. So why pretend they're the same? So remember, if you're talking satiety, you've got the steak with fat, which activates cholecystokinin. It's got uh, protein, which is going to activate peptide YY. It's got bulk, so it's going to activate stretch receptors in your stomach. All very powerful satiety signals that that big gulp of Coke has zero. So you're going to drink that Coke with the same amount of calories, and you're not going to feel any more full because you haven't activated any of your satiety signals. Same as if you eat a whole lot of uh, white bread. Well, there's no fat, so there's no cholecystokinin. There's no protein, so there's no peptide YY. You've processed it, so there's not a lot of bulk, and you're not activating your uh, stretch receptors in your stomach. Where are you going to get satiety from? So when you eat that white bread and jam in the morning because you wanted to eat a low-fat breakfast, you're starving at 10.30. And that's why you go find yourself a low-fat muffin. If mm. you ate steak and eggs for breakfast, you wouldn't be hungry. And that's the mm. secret of the ketogenic diet is that you're eating foods, which is primarily protein and fat, which are going to activate these satiety signals. And satiety signals are, are incredibly powerful. If you try to eat a huge 60-ounce steak, like you know how you go to those restaurants, oh, you eat this giant uh. steak in an hour and we'll give it to you for free. Like they don't give away very many free steaks <laughs> because it's very hard. Like when you get full, like when you're at a Chinese buffet and you're too full and you start like, you know, oh, can I eat another piece of pork chop? It's like, I feel like throwing up, right? right? It's very powerful. But then you say, oh, could I eat a cookie? It's like, yeah, because there's no satiety signaling there. So wow. you can eat that big meal and then get yourself some dessert with some cookies because there's no satiety. It's not going to make you more full. Your satiety signals are telling you stop, stop, stop. So if you eat a cookie where, which doesn't activate that satiety signal, you can still do it. And that's the problem. So mm. we went to eating all these food with a basically no satiety. And that was the thing. It's the hunger which drives the calories in. Just like the calories out. It's not exercise. It's basal metabolic rate. And mm. the basal metabolic rate is important because if you are having a regular fasting period, then you're going to be able to let your insulin go down, keep your sympathetic nervous system activated, keep your nor, you know, catecholamines up, your growth hormone up, and you're going to keep your metabolic rate up. So mm -hmm. the calories in is hunger. It's not calories in. The focus should not be on calories in, but what's driving that calories in, which is hunger. And the calories out should be looking at the basal metabolic rate, which is making sure you have that fasting period, letting your wow. insulin go down periodically. I'm a bit speechless because of how much knowledge you've been throwing down and uh, and just making making sense of it. This is what I, I, I'm, I'm really appreciating. I, I want to also dive into some of this. We are in the height of a pandemic. There's a couple of things I want to bring up with you. One, 
there was just a JAMA article that came out looking at risk factors for for um, death associated with uh, COVID-19. So diabetic, hypertensive, obesity, all links to kind of to having worse outcomes if, if, if contracting COVID-19. So that's one issue I want to talk about. And also just the effect of fasting on immunity. So maybe like, you know, we talked about the cost of savings if we could, if, if this could really be scaled up. But like, to me also, it's like, what an opportunity to really talk about this when we're in this pandemic, we know what some of these risk factors are and how fasting can be influenced, like influence uh, these risk factors. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very important because the effect on COVID is pretty much unknown, as is everything on COVID. But Mm -hmm. we know that these people are going to be with poor metabolic health are going to be at significantly increased risk, like 90% plus have other underlying conditions and uh, metabolic conditions primarily. So if we can, and it's, it's not just COVID, but if you look at diabetics, for example, they're at huge risk for all kinds of other infections. So mucormycosis and diabetic foot ulcers. It's always interesting to me because if you look at diabetic foot ulcers and diabetic osteomyelitis and so on, it's like, these are infections that nobody else gets. Mm-hmm. Like you get these diabetic foot ulcers other That's than true. peripheral vascular disease. Like you don't have, you don't see it, right? It's not like you get these, you know, draining wounds and stuff and osteomyelitis coming out of the blue. It's because they're at huge risk of infections in general. So COVID is probably part of that. And so that you're going to be at very high risk. Um, in terms of autoimmunity, it's very interesting, although there's a lot less data on it. Uh, people talk about it. Um, there's a bit of uh, science in terms of resetting the immune system. And that's primarily with longer fast, but that's also in animal data. So it's very, very hard to know. However, um, what's interesting is that when you fast, your body sort of goes into this sort of protective state. That is, it's, it, it senses the nutrient sensors, which is mTOR, insulin, and AMPK. The nutrient sensors are all activated to tell you that there's no food coming in. And therefore, the body actually starts to get rid of sort of the excess cells because it can't maintain all those cells if there's no nutrition coming in. So therefore, the, the thought is that a lot of these overactive uh, immune cells may also get down-regulated. So that's an interesting hypothesis. Um, And there is a bit of animal data in it. And I was talking to somebody, I think Dr. Longo, uh, who does a lot of this research, and he's thinking that it may take like longer fast to get that uh, to do it. But interesting, because if you're talking about things such as um, autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, you know, SLE, it may be an interesting adjunct to other treatments because we struggle with a lot of these vasculitis and stuff. We get a lot of toxic drugs thrown into these people. Um, and perhaps the milder cases anyway, we, we, could, we could sort of modulate that uh, immune system with a periodic long fast or a regular fasting. So it's, it's an interesting uh, hypothesis. And there's a whole lot of other things, people talking in terms of prevention of things like cancer. So one of the really, really important findings of the last 20 years 
is that there are a huge number of obesity-related cancers. So this is not something that was known before 2003. So very interesting to me because I, as I said, I went to school in the 90s, so I never learned about this. But it wasn't until 2003 when they published a very big study in the New England Journal that really definitively showed that obesity was a huge risk factor. <laughs> For all kinds of cancers, amongst them breast cancer, colorectal cancer. So those are sort of very, very important uh, diseases that we didn't know prior to 2003 were obesity related. Now, currently, there are 13 cancers that are classified as obesity related. So again, if you're going to be able to attenuate those risk factors, uh, again, primarily hyperinsulinemia. So insulin is a growth factor. Therefore, hyperinsulinemia is going to you know, uh, put you at risk of diseases of excessive growth. Then uh, it, it may go, you know, you may reduce your risk. And sure enough, if you lose weight, the risk of, you know, they've done these studies where you look at weight loss and the risk of subsequent breast cancer, for example. And it's, it's very, very interesting stuff. And there's also uh, Alzheimer's disease. For example, people are talking about it, uh, does fasting help with the prevention of Alzheimer's disease? And it's, it's possible that the, the data is not entirely there yet, but it does appear that it also is sort of one of these metabolic um, diseases that would be important. So mm -hmm. anyway, I, I actually have to, to run soon. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate the, the comments on, on some of that. Like, what actually really made me want to ask you about it too was like uh, I had a friend text me saying, you know, it's we're on Ramadan and and you know it's I don't know if this is true or not, but just a lot of people might be being discouraged to fast because of COVID nineteen. So I, I was interested to hear you know some of the your thoughts on that, but I'm also cognizant of the time. So a couple of things I just want to you got a new book, Life in the Fasting Lane. You've got the like several books out. We're going to make sure to put those in the show notes. I just really, really appreciate the conversation because once again, hearing that physiology side and hearing your perspective on, on a lot of this, I think is going to be enlightening to many and hopefully inspiring because uh, like I said, I, I really think this is something that should be scaled up and it, it, it has a lot of upside and it's sustainable, which is what I want to emphasize as well. But Jason... Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. And uh, I hope you'll be willing to come back on because I know our our uh, listeners are going to be super excited about this episode. Yeah, it's great. I love diving into the physiology. It's really, you know, to me, it's always been a bit of, uh, it's so interesting that we got so much wrong and how thinking about it correctly can lead us to interventions that actually have huge potential to make so many people better for no money. It's like crazy. Like we spend all exactly. this money on drugs, but in fact, one of our most powerful weapons is probably completely free and we don't use it at all. It's like ridiculous. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, anything I can do to help that, uh, help people get better. Yeah. And uh, here on the show, we're going to try and do our part too. But uh, thanks again and uh, stay safe out there, my friend. Okay. Take care. Good to see take you. Care. Good to see you. Man, that was straight up balling. I loved that episode. I learned a lot, put a lot of explanation to why fasting can be so effective. I hope you guys appreciated the show. Please leave comments at Quadcast. 
at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, at Quadcast. I want to thank our, our team, the show notes crew, social media crew. We love you. I want to thank all our fans in Lacombe, Alberta. Shout out to Lacombe. We love you too. And, um, and thanks everybody for listening. If you love the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating. We really appreciate that. And, uh, and for all you guys uh, out there, stay safe. And we'll talk to you all soon.